It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual abuse, suicide, and filicide that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. On the cool fall evening of October 25, 1994, 23-year-old Susan Smith sat white-knuckled behind the steering wheel of her red Mazda protege. The wind from the open window slapped her tear-stained face. She'd clicked off the radio miles ago, wanting to make sense of the crushing chaos of thoughts swirling around her head. Susan struggled to see the road through her swollen red eyes. She'd been sobbing for what seemed like hours. She tugged at the cuff of her Auburn University sweatshirt. Absent-mindedly, she gnawed at her fingernail, considering where to go. She jerked the steering wheel just in time to take the next exit. Under the cover of darkness, Susan Smith cautiously drove her four-door sedan onto the 75-foot boat dock of John D. Long Lake. Alone on the peaceful waterfront, She stopped halfway down the access ramp and threw the car into neutral. She let it roll towards the water a moment before stepping on the brake. Distraught, Susan stared out at the lapping waves illuminated by the headlights. She listened to the hum of the motor and the soft, soothing noises of her sleeping toddlers. Her babies were sound asleep in the back, securely strapped into their car seats. Their bare feet dangled sweetly as the crisp fall air nipped at their toes. Michael, age three, and Alex, 14 months, were sleeping so soundly, one could almost forget that they were there. Almost. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
To stream female criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type female criminals in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This is our first episode on convicted murderer Susan Smith. In October of 1994, the 23-year-old mother of two drove her car into a South Carolina lake as her boys slept in their car seats. This week, we'll talk about Susan Smith's traumatic childhood, her tumultuous relationships with the men in her life, and the infamous letter that drove her to commit the unthinkable. Next week, we'll cover the carjacking story she told police, Susan's eventual arrest, and the trial that captivated a nation. Susan Smith was born Susan Lee Vaughn on September 26, 1971, in the working-class industrial town of Union, South Carolina. The third child and only daughter of Harry and Linda Vaughn, Susan was born into anything but a happy home. Harry, a firefighter-turned-millworker, was prone to violent outbursts and fits of jealousy, often brought on by alcohol abuse and bouts of depression. Too young to truly grasp the dysfunction within her family, Susan adored her father in spite of his faults. Described as the apple of Harry's eye, Susan had a strong bond with her father at a young age, though even the love of his daughter couldn't stop him from abusing his wife and threatening the lives of his family. Driven by jealousy, Harry often accused Linda of being unfaithful. These fights escalated quickly, sometimes building to Harry threatening to kill Linda and himself if she didn't quit cheating on him. And he wasn't just talk. One night, Harry waved a loaded gun around and threatened to kill both her and the kids. Fearing for her life, Linda managed to call for help and keep her children safe. Then, after 17 years of marriage, Linda divorced Harry on December 7, 1977, when Susan was just six years old. Harry couldn't bear the idea of being without his family. Five weeks after the divorce was made final, in the eerie quiet of an early winter morning, Harry decided to take his own life. Placing the gun between his legs, he aimed the barrel at his abdomen and shot. But the wound didn't kill him. Laying in a pool of his own blood, Harry dialed 911 for help. An ambulance rushed him to the nearest hospital, but it wasn't enough. Harry died the same day as doctors tried to save him. Susan wouldn't learn the truth about how her father died for many years. She was told that he was cleaning a gun when it accidentally went off. The night of Harry's death, Linda told her six-year-old daughter, your daddy went to be in heaven. Susan considered the tragedy for just a moment before responding, I want to go to heaven too, so I can be with my daddy. After Harry's death, Susan became somewhat of an introvert. A parent of one of Susan's childhood friends described her as being an unhappy child who seemed disconnected and would stare into space like she wasn't there. 
Before we continue with Susan's psychology, please note that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to a study led by Johns Hopkins Children's Center, losing a parent at an early age emerges as a catalyst for suicide and psychiatric disorders. The study found that offspring who experienced a parental loss to suicide before the age of 13 were at a higher risk for attempting suicide themselves later in life than the offspring of living parents. Children of suicidal parents were also more likely to suffer from other psychiatric disorders, such as depression, psychosis, and personality disorders throughout their lifetime. Susan's distant nature after her father's suicide could have been a red flag that she was in need of early psychiatric intervention, but it doesn't appear that she received any counseling after her father's death. Without receiving the help she required, Susan was left at risk to experience some form of psychological distress throughout her formative years. It wasn't long before Susan's family was made somewhat whole once again. Shortly after her divorce, her mother married Beverly Russell, a prominent local businessman. They moved to Beverly's sprawling ranch house in an exclusive subdivision of Union. A staunchly religious man, Beverly often led the community in prayer. He was a prominent figure in both the state Republican Party and the Christian Coalition. One could say he was a far cry from the father Susan and her brothers had known. With the support of a stable home life, Susan was shaping up to be quite the well-rounded young woman. She was voted friendliest female in her high school yearbook and president of her community volunteering club. For a while, it seemed as if Beverly was exactly the male role model Susan needed in her life. Until, that is, Susan became a charismatic and attractive teenage girl. One night in 1987, a tired Susan crawled onto her stepfather's lap while he watched TV, intending to go to sleep. Unfortunately, Beverly had other plans for his then 15-year-old stepdaughter. According to an article about Susan in Newsweek, Beverly slid Susan's bra up and fondled her breast and took her hand and put it on his penis. Susan reported Beverly's inappropriate behavior to her mother, Linda, and the Department of Social Services. When confronted with Susan's accusations, Beverly didn't deny the story. He admitted to Linda that the whole altercation made him feel like some kind of pervert when it happened. Beverly agreed to move out of the home and seek counseling. Linda, though initially supportive of her daughter, grew increasingly concerned for Beverly's reputation around Union. He was, after all, actively campaigning for Pat Robertson's presidential bid. After a few family counseling sessions, Beverly was allowed to move back home with the assurance that Linda and Susan didn't intend to press charges. But the abuse didn't stop when Beverly returned home. In 1988, during her junior year of high school, Susan told a guidance counselor of her stepfather's continued molestation. Then in 1989, Susan confided to a psychiatrist that she viewed her intimate relationship with Beverly Russell not as abuse, but rather as consensual, and that she happily participated in the affair because she was jealous of the attention Beverly gave her mother. The medical paper entitled Sexual Revictimization, a Review of the Empirical Literature by Catherine C. Klassen, 
Oksana Gronska-Palesh and Rashi Agarwal found that victims who were sexually abused in childhood are three times more likely to experience sexual behavior problems in adulthood. Victims of child sexual abuse often experience blame and self-shame for what has happened to them. This can lead to an avoidance coping mechanism in survivors, making it harder for them to recognize potentially dangerous and unhealthy relationships. It can also lead the victim to subconsciously seek out a way to reenact the abuse to control the situation. This could have been part of Susan's subconscious drive to continue the sexual relationship with Beverly Russell. It likely also played a part in her decision to get romantically involved with a married man. By the summer of 1988, 16-year-old Susan was sexually involved with three men her stepfather, Beverly Russell, and two of her co-workers at Winn-Dixie, where she worked as a cashier. Soon enough, she was pregnant. Susan had an abortion and ended her relationship with the baby's father. The experience left Susan deeply depressed, and she attempted suicide by overdosing on Tylenol and aspirin. Luckily, her attempt was unsuccessful. After her recovery, Susan returned to her job at Winn-Dixie, eager for a fresh start. So when her quiet co-worker, 18-year-old David Smith, showed interest in dating her, she couldn't help but feel excited. Susan's smile and warm, outgoing personality was what first grabbed David's attention. Having been raised a Jehovah's Witness, David often felt sheltered and isolated throughout his upbringing. He found Susan's friendly nature magnetic. Like Susan, David's childhood was complicated. His parents divorced when he was young, and his mother enforced strict religious standards on him and his siblings. As a teenager, David pulled away from his mother's beliefs. Shortly before dating Susan, David left the religion completely and moved into his great-grandmother's house. With similar backgrounds and an undeniable attraction, Susan and David became an item in 1990. Neither were looking for anything serious. However, when Susan found out she was pregnant only months into dating, they decided to get married and start a family. Susan was hopeful for the future she'd share with David and their new baby, but like so much of Susan's life, her wedding was marked by tragedy. Just days before the ceremony, David's brother, Danny, died unexpectedly of complications from Crohn's disease. A few months after that, David's father attempted suicide, unable to cope with the heartbreaking loss of his son. It was Susan who found her father-in-law and called 911. He was sprawled out on the bed, barely conscious, having taken an overdose of pills. It was a horrifying experience for Susan. These complicated emotions associated with losing a sibling and caring for a parent in the extreme throes of grief would be challenging for any couple. But for someone as emotionally needy as Susan, it was especially hard to be tethered to a partner grappling with his own internal struggles. And on top of everything else, they were about to welcome their new baby boy. By all accounts, the Smiths were eager to finally become a family. A friend of Susan's recalled that she was happy about her pregnancy and couldn't wait for the baby to come. 
When they teased David about the inevitable middle-of-the-night feedings, he handled it in stride, ready and willing to play the part of doting dad. Michael Daniel Smith was born on October 10, 1991. Susan was elated. She wrote about Michael's birth in her diary. It was truly the most wonderful experience of my life. He really lifted my spirits and touched my heart. With the birth of Michael, Susan suddenly found herself a new mother and wife, all at the age of 20. She strived to look the part of a responsible adult. She started taking courses at the local university and set her sights on creating a better future for herself and her son. Little did she know her desire to advance in her own life would ultimately destroy several of the lives around her. Coming up, the birth of Susan's second son creates a turning point in her marriage. Now, back to the story. In 1991, 20-year-old Susan Smith welcomed her first child with her husband, David. She loved her new son, Michael, but adjusting to motherhood had its challenges. Restless for something more, she returned to work at Winn-Dixie part-time. But David was now a supervisor at the store. Working beneath her husband's watchful eye proved more difficult than she could handle. It wasn't long before David and Susan's relationship started to suffer. At work, David chastised Susan for socializing on the clock. At home, financial constraints weighed on the couple. They struggled to pay their bills and fought over Susan's desire to buy things David felt they couldn't afford. Then there was the matter of their home. The couple had moved in with David's great-grandmother after the wedding to save money. Susan felt like a permanent guest and hated it. She had no say over how the house was decorated or even what pictures were allowed on the walls. In her book, My Daughter Susan Smith, Susan's mother recalled how photos of David with ex-girlfriends were displayed proudly throughout the house. When Susan complained about their presence, David threw his hands up in indifference, claiming he couldn't remove them because the pictures belonged to his great-grandmother, just like everything else in their home. Another point of contention in the marriage was Susan's mother, Linda. David felt that Linda had too much influence over their lives. He resented the fact that she was in the delivery room during Michael's birth and that she was always dropping by to see Susan and the baby. When she visited, he'd disappear into another room or leave the house entirely, ignoring her presence completely. It was no secret that Linda and David didn't get along. So when Susan confided in her mother about the fights she'd had with David during that first year of marriage, Linda offered strong opinions on how Susan should handle her new husband. Though all newlyweds experienced their own challenges, it seemed as if Susan and David's marriage was dealt a crippling amount. A 2008 Clinical Psychology Review article titled The Role of Stress on Close Relationships and Marital Satisfaction by Ashley K. Randall and Guy Bodenman suggested that excessive stress inside a marriage is a threat to both the happiness of the couple and the longevity of the relationship. The article cited such external stressors as financial burden, parenthood, and stress brought on by extended family relations as factors that could hinder marital success. 
Susan and David, it seemed, were suffocating beneath a trifecta of external stressors all within a year. Eventually, Susan reached her limit. Just two days after the young couple's first wedding anniversary, Susan took baby Michael and moved back in with her mother. Though separated, Susan and David tried to reconnect as a couple over the course of the next seven months. He began courting Susan again, sending flowers and love letters to her mother's house and taking her out on dates. Susan was hopeful that they could work things out, After all, she still loved David, but more importantly, she wanted things to work for Michael's sake. She didn't want her son to grow up without his father, a reality she had been struggling with almost her entire life. But admittedly, Susan wasn't a woman who enjoyed being alone. She took the separation as an opportunity to rekindle a relationship with an old boyfriend. This infuriated David. Irate, he showed up on one of Susan's dates and assaulted the man she was with, even though David was seeing another woman while trying to win Susan back. Susan continued to go on dates with David and attempted to make sense of their volatile relationship. Eventually, over the course of their separation, Susan became pregnant with David's second child. The couple took it as a sign that they should get back together and finally settle down. Susan saw an advantage in their growing family and convinced David to buy a house as part of their new beginning as a couple. They borrowed money from Linda for a down payment, and by the winter of 1992, the young family moved into a small, ranch-style home, all their own. They worked together to fix it up. David got them a new TV, and Susan put up a Mickey Mouse border in Michael's bedroom. From the outside, it seemed like Susan and David finally had everything they'd been striving for. The couple hoped a new house and a fresh coat of paint would fix the problems between them. It didn't. Susan enjoyed her second pregnancy far less than the first, and she and David grew farther apart instead of coming closer together. He was the next to have an extramarital affair, while Susan was in her last trimester of pregnancy. After the birth of Alexander Tyler Smith on August 5, 1993, Susan and David recommitted to making their family work in spite of his recent indiscretion. But after only three weeks at home, David moved out of the house he shared with Susan and his two young children. Regardless of how toxic the romantic relationship between Susan and David may have been, they both seemed to be caring and involved parents. Even when separated, Susan continued to bring the boys by the Winn-Dixie to visit and play with David throughout the week. Where they failed as a couple, their partnership as parents seemed strong and cooperative for the sake of their boys, an attribute that didn't go unnoticed in their community. But behind closed doors, Susan struggled to adjust to life as a single mother of two. She leaned heavily on family and friends for support. To make ends meet, Susan started working for Conso Products, a leading manufacturer of interior decorating trims. And though she started at the company as a bookkeeper, Susan was eventually hired as the assistant to the executive secretary to its CEO, J. Carey Findlay. He was one of the wealthiest residents in Union, South Carolina. Console may have been just a place of business to other employees, 
But to Susan, it felt like a brand new chapter in her life. The excitement she felt going to work every day made her happy again. She took pride in what she did and enjoyed making travel arrangements for her boss and chatting with local vendors. Her responsibilities at the company put her in contact with some of the wealthiest people she'd ever known and opened her eyes to their extravagant lifestyles. For once, Susan could see a future for herself, one that didn't involve David. She valued the friends she made at Conso, too, especially Tom Findlay, a 27-year-old graphic designer. Tom also happened to be the son of her boss and heir to his company. 22-year-old Susan couldn't help but notice Tom. Of course, she'd known who he was before he introduced himself. He was a hot topic of discussion in the office. The ladies of Conso considered him quite the catch, handsome and friendly, and Susan couldn't disagree. Susan and Tom started talking one evening after work in the fall of 1993. It may have been chilly standing there in the parking lot as they chatted, but Susan didn't mind. He was so charming and so polite. She smiled when he asked her to go to lunch with him later that week. Of course she would. Their dates were mostly going out to lunch or catching a movie after work. Sometimes they'd gather with friends from the office to grab a drink or watch TV. It wasn't long before Susan became enamored. It was easy to be with Tom, and he made her feel needed and cared for. By January of 1994, Susan and Tom had started sleeping together. But their romance was a flash in the pan, made complicated by the fact that Susan wasn't officially divorced from David yet. By March, Susan and Tom had broken things off. She started sleeping with David again, and the two spent the summer of 1994 trying to figure out their status. David moved back in, and they went on a family beach vacation with friends. They tried one last time to make things work, but by the end of the summer, Susan and David finally decided their marriage was really over. Susan started to spiral. Being alone was something she had come to dread. Suicidal thoughts haunted her on a regular basis, and Susan began drinking more frequently. She tried to push the anxious, depressed feelings aside and carry on with her hectic life as a single working mother. It wasn't long before she turned to familiar, if not dangerous, habits for comfort. In August of 1994, 22-year-old Susan and her stepfather, Beverly Russell, resumed their sexual relationship in secret. Tom Findlay had made an effort to stay away from Susan while she tried to work things out with David over the summer. But by September of 1994, the two were also back together. Susan grew hopeful. Now she and Tom were finally free to be together. But it didn't take long for Tom to realize Susan's emotionally needy nature was more than he had bargained for. And while Susan was daydreaming about the happy future ahead of her and Tom, he was trying to find the best way to break things off, ultimately delivering the emotional blow that would drive Susan to her breaking point. Coming up, Tom sends Susan the letter that pushes her over the edge. And now, back to the story. In the fall of 1994, 
23-year-old Susan Smith had officially filed for divorce from her 24-year-old husband, David. It didn't take long for Susan to fall head over heels for her new boyfriend, 28-year-old Tom Findlay. And now, with the divorce, they were finally able to be a couple, something Susan seemed to want very much. Susan and Tom's relationship was nothing out of the ordinary. They frequently went to lunch and the movies. She had commandeered his gray Auburn University sweatshirt and wore it frequently around town. Sometimes they hung out together at a local bar or gathered with friends to watch the popular 90s soap opera Melrose Place. But Susan's life was almost like a soap opera in and of itself. And after her drama with David and their tumultuous back and forth as a couple, Susan felt hopeful for a better future with Tom. In fact, Susan very well could have assumed things between the two of them were heating up. On the weekend of October 15, 1994, Tom Findlay invited Susan to a hot tub party at his father's estate. As the night progressed, the party got steamier, and the swimsuits became optional. But Susan and Tom weren't the only ones naked in the hot tub, and eventually, Tom's attentions drifted. Susan curdled with jealousy when she saw Tom necking with another woman at the party. She lashed out at him the only way she knew how, by flirting with another man. Susan kissed a co-worker's husband in the hot tub. Presumably, Susan decided to kiss and fondle her friend's husband to get a reaction out of Tom. And it worked. It just wasn't the reaction Susan was hoping for. He wasn't jealous. He was disgusted. Tom was honest with Susan after the hot tub incident and told her he didn't appreciate how she acted. Susan went home that night knowing she'd made a mistake and wanted to take it back. Susan wrote Tom a card apologizing for her behavior. She admitted that she'd really wanted to be with him that night, not the married man, and hated that she wasn't. She valued his friendship above all else, and her feelings for him would never change. Susan wrote, I want you to know that I have never felt with anyone the way I feel when I'm with you. I have never felt so needed. Unfortunately for Susan, what she had interpreted as needed by Tom, he perceived more as suffocation. To him, it felt like Susan was growing unreasonably possessive and pressuring him for a future he had no intention of sharing with her. The week after the hot tub party, Tom wrote back to Susan, hoping to let her down easy. First, he told Susan how flattered he was by her high opinion of him and that he too valued their friendship. He appreciated that he felt like he could tell her anything and wanted to always remain friends. But the main purpose of the letter was to let Susan know that, as far as he was concerned, they had no future, at least not romantically. He opened his letter to her with admiration, praising her intelligence and beauty. In his opinion, she had a lot of qualities that would make some lucky man a great wife. Then Tom wrote, but unfortunately, it won't be me. Although he cared for Susan, he knew they didn't have a future together, and it wouldn't be right to let her think otherwise. He could see himself falling for her, but there were just some things about her that didn't suit his lifestyle. 
He claimed he never wanted to have his own children or feel responsible for anyone else's. He wrote, I'm sure that your kids are good kids, but it really wouldn't matter how good they may be. The fact is, I just don't want children. But, he admitted, her children weren't the only reason he didn't want to be with her. He was convinced they would never be able to overcome the differences between them. He felt that because she'd gotten married and had kids at such a young age, she was now too, quote, boy crazy for her own good. He cautioned her to be choosy about her next relationship and reminded her that, quote, if you want to catch a nice guy like me one day, you have to act like a nice girl. And, you know, nice girls don't sleep with married men. Before ending the letter, Tom told her how he thought that she was a special person and had so much potential. He tried to build up her self-esteem and wrote, Don't settle for mediocre in life. Go for it all and only settle for the best. I do. Out of all the reasons Tom listed as to why they couldn't be together, there was only one that stood out as truly insurmountable. Her kids. Tom didn't want any, and he didn't want to be responsible for hers. October 25, 1994, started like any other day for 23-year-old Susan Smith and her two boys, Michael, age 3, and Alex, 14 months. Susan got the boys dressed and dropped them off at daycare before driving to work. Somewhere around 1 o'clock, Susan and a group of co-workers went to lunch. Tom was there as well. Susan was noticeably quiet. She tried to maintain small talk with Tom and the others, but she was visibly upset. Later that afternoon at the office, she could barely contain her composure. When asked what was wrong, Susan simply said, I'm in love with someone who doesn't love me, but it can never be because of my children. Instead of going home, Susan spoke with Tom outside the office. In a last-ditch effort to gain his sympathy, she confided that she was scared her ex-husband was going to air her dirty laundry during their messy divorce. Susan explained that David knew that she was still having a sexual relationship with her stepfather, Beverly Russell. Tom took the information in, but it was clear to Susan it wasn't going to change their status. So she escalated her tactics. Susan claimed that she was also sleeping with Tom's father, J. Carey Findlay. Tom was shocked and disturbed. He'd heard enough. He told Susan their romantic involvement was finished, forever. And then he walked away. Susan left work and picked her sons up from daycare. But then she took the boys with her back to Conso. She needed to see Tom one more time. A friend watched her sons while she went inside. She told Tom she had lied about sleeping with his father. She wanted to get a reaction out of him before, and now she was sorry. Before leaving, she tried to give him back the gray Auburn University sweatshirt that had become a favorite of hers. He told her to keep it. He worried Susan was trying to return it as a final gesture and that she planned to commit suicide. According to an article published by the Mayo Clinic, suicidal warning signs can include the act of giving away belongings or getting affairs in order when there's no logical need for it. Susan was adamant about being able to apologize to Tom that night. 
Coupled with her erratic behavior and visible emotional distress, Tom's concern that Susan may have been exhibiting suicidal tendencies in this moment weren't unfounded. Indeed, Susan drove away from Tom's office feeling desperate and alone and prepared to take drastic action. Susan Smith drove aimlessly around the streets of Union, Michael and Alex strapped into their car seats in the back. Blinking through her tears and in so much pain, she thought at first she'd go to her mother's house, but then she changed her mind. Suicidal thoughts swam through her head, as they had most days for months now. This time she was determined. She was going to kill herself. But Susan couldn't bear the thought of her boys growing up without a mother. She searched her chaotic mind for a solution. Finally, she found one. She had to take them with her. Susan drove to a nearby bridge and considered jumping, holding her children in either arm. But Michael's crying from the back seat snapped her out of the thought, and she continued driving. Susan turned off of Highway 49 to John D. Long Lake under the cover of darkness. She eased the car onto the 75-foot boat ramp, stopping halfway between the safety of the lot and the edge of the water. She slipped the car into neutral. Susan felt it begin to roll down the ramp towards the water, then stopped the car, putting her foot on the brake. She yanked on the emergency handbrake and stared out at the lapping waves illuminated by the car's headlights. The letter Tom wrote was sitting beside her in the front seat. His words weighed heavy on her mind as she considered whether she wanted to live or die. She considered her options, continue a future wrought with depression and anxiety, or kill herself. Susan had never felt so sad and so alone as she did in that moment, and being alone was just something she couldn't handle. With the radio off, Susan had nothing to listen to but the unrelenting, depressed thoughts in her head— and the soft, soothing noises of her two sons asleep in the back seat. Susan yanked the emergency brake off, letting the car roll just enough before throwing it on once again, perhaps trying to make up her mind, or maybe not in her right mind at all. Susan decided to step out of the running car. From the safety of the dock, Susan leaned in and released the handbrake one last time before stepping away from the moving car. She stood there as her car rolled the remaining 40 feet down the ramp into the dark, cold waters of the lake. And with her two young children trapped in the back seat of her sinking car, all Susan Smith could do was stand there. 23-year-old Susan Smith stood in the chill of the night air and watched her burgundy-red Mazda protege bob slightly on the surface of John D. Long Lake for minutes before sinking below the water. She focused in on the dim glow of the headlights slowly fading deeper into the darkness, lighting the way to where Michael and Alex would be lost forever. 
As the car disappeared beneath the water, Susan covered her ears. She didn't want to hear the cries of her children as they awoke to the water rushing in around them. Susan turned around and ran back up the boat ramp. She started writing the story she would tell police about what happened to her baby boys that night. The story that would gain Tom's sympathies and bring him back to her. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two of Susan Smith's story. We'll cover the carjacking lie Susan told police to hide her crime, as well as the life or death trial that followed. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Andrea Conway Kagi, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson.